Chapter Thirteen of the Life of Honorable William F. Cody. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Barry Eads. The Life of Honorable William F. Cody by William F. Cody. Chapter Thirteen, A Millionaire. Soon after returning to Fort Hayes, I was sent with dispatches to Fort Harker. After delivering the messages, I visited the town of Ellsworth, about three miles west of Fort Harker, and there I met a man named William Rose, a contractor on the Kansas Pacific Railroad, who had a contract for grading near Fort Hayes. He had had his stock stolen by the Indians, and had come to Ellsworth to buy more. During the course of our conversation, Mr. Rose incidentally remarked that he had some idea of laying out a town on the west side of Big Creek, about one mile from the fort where the railroad was to cross. He asked my opinion of the contemplated enterprise, and I told him that I thought it was a big thing. He then proposed taking me as a partner in the scheme, and suggested that after we got the town laid out and thrown open to the public, we should establish a store and saloon there. Thinking it would be a grand thing to be half-owner of a town, I at once accepted his proposition. We bought a stock of such articles as are usually found in a frontier store, and transported them to the place on Big Creek, where we were to found our town. We hired a railroad engineer to survey the site, and stake it off into lots, and we gave the new town the ancient and historical name of Rome. To a starter, we donated lots to anyone who would build on them, but reserved the corner lots and others which were best located for ourselves. These reserved lots we valued at fifty dollars each. Our modern Rome, like all mushroom towns along the line of a new railroad, sprang up as if by magic, and in less than one month we had two hundred frame and log houses, three or four stores, several saloons, and one good hotel. Rome was looming up, and Rose and I already considered ourselves millionaires, and thought we had the world by the tail. But one day a fine-looking gentleman, calling himself Dr. W. E. Webb, appeared in town, and dropping into our store, introduced himself in a very pleasant way. Gentlemen, you've got a flourishing little town here. Wouldn't you like to have a partner in your enterprise? No, thank you, said I. We have too good a thing here to whack up with anybody. My partner agreed with me, but the conversation was continued, and at last the stranger said, Gentlemen, I am the agent or prospector of the Kansas Pacific Railroad, and my business is to locate towns for the company along the line. We think we have the only suitable town site in this immediate locality, said Mr. Rose, and as a town has already started, we have saved the company considerable expense. You know as well as I do, said Dr. Webb, that the company expects to make money by selling land and town lots, and as you are not disposed to give the company a show, or share with me, I shall probably have to start another town near you. Competition is the life of trade, you know. Start your town if you want to. We've got the bulge on you, and can hold it, said I, somewhat provoked at his threat. But we acted too independently, and too indiscreetly for our own good. Dr. Webb, the very next day after his interview with us, began hauling material to a spot about one mile east of us, where he staked out a new town, which he called Hayes City. He took great pains to circulate in our town the story that the railroad company would locate their roundhouses and machine shops at Hayes City, and that it was to be the town and a splendid business center. A ruinous stampede from our place was the result. People who had built in Rome came to the conclusion that they had built in the wrong place. They began pulling down their buildings and moving them over to Hayes City, and in less than three days our once flourishing city had dwindled down to the little store which Rose and I had built. It was on a bright summer morning that we sat on a pine box in front of our crib, 
moodily viewing the demolition of the last building. Three days before, we had considered ourselves millionaires. On that morning we looked around and saw that we were reduced to the ragged edge of poverty. Our sanguine expectations of realizing immense fortunes were dashed to the ground, and we felt pretty blue. The new town of Hayes had swallowed Rome entirely. Mr. Rose facetiously remarked that he felt like the last rose of summer, with all his lovely companions faded and gone, and he left blooming alone. I told him I was still there, staunch and true, but he replied that that didn't help the matter much. Thus ends the brief history of the rise, decline, and fall of modern Rome. It having become evident to me that there was very little hope of Rome ever regaining its former splendor and prosperity, I sent my wife and daughter Arda, who had been born at Leavenworth in the latter part of December 1866, to St. Louis on a visit. They had been living with me for some little time in the rear part of our store. At this time Mr. Rose and myself had a contract under Schumacher, Miller & Company, constructors of the Kansas Pacific, for grading five miles of track westward from Big Creek and running through the site of Rome. Notwithstanding we had been deserted, we had some small hope that they would not be able to get water at the new town, and that the people would all soon move back to Rome, as we really had the best location. We determined, therefore, to go on with our grading contract, and wait for something better to turn up. It was indeed hard for us, who had been millionaires, to come down to the level of common railroad contractors, but we had to do it all the same. We visited the new town of Hayes almost daily, to see how it was progressing, and in a short time we became much better acquainted with Dr. Webb, who had reduced us from our late independent to our present dependent position. We found him a perfect gentleman, a whole-souled, genial-hearted fellow, whom everybody liked and respected. Nearly every day, Doc and I would take a ride over the prairie together and hunt buffalo. On one occasion, having ventured about ten miles from the town, we spied a band of Indians not over two miles distant, who were endeavoring to get between us and the town, and thus cut us off. I was mounted on my celebrated horse, Brigham, the fleetest steed I ever owned. On several subsequent occasions he saved my life, and he was the horse that I rode when I killed sixty-nine buffaloes in one day. Dr. Webb was riding a beautiful thoroughbred bay, which he had brought with him from the east. Having such splendid horses, we laughed at the idea of a band of Indians overtaking us on a square run, no matter how well they might be mounted. But not caring to be cut off by them, we ran our steeds about three miles towards home, thus getting between the braves and the town. The Indians were then about three-quarters of a mile distant, and we stopped and waved our hats at them, and fired some shots at long range. There were thirteen in the party, and as they were getting pretty close to us, we struck out for Hayes. They came on in pursuit and sent several scattering shots after us, but we easily left them behind. They finally turned and rode off towards the Saline River. The doctor thought this glorious sport, and wanted to organize a party to go in pursuit of them, but I induced him to give up this idea, although he did so rather reluctantly. The doctor soon became quite an expert hunter, and before he had remained on the prairie a year, there were but few men in the country who could kill more buffaloes on a hunt than he. Being aware that Rose and myself felt rather downhearted over our deserted village, the doctor one day said that, as he had made the proprietors of Rome howl, he would give us two lots each in Hayes, and did so. We finally came to the conclusion that our old town was dead beyond redemption or revival, and we thereupon devoted our undivided attention to our railroad contract. One day we were pushed for horses to work on our scrapers, so I hitched up Brigham to see how he would work. He was not much used to that kind of labor, and I was about giving up the idea of making a workhorse of him, 
when one of the men called to me that there were some buffaloes coming over the hill. As there had been no buffaloes seen anywhere in the vicinity of the camp for several days, we had become rather short of meat. I immediately told one of our men to hitch his horses to a wagon and follow me, as I was going out after the herd, and we would bring back some fresh meat for supper. I had no saddle, as mine had been left at the camp a mile distant. So taking the harness from Brigham, I mounted him bareback, and started out after the game, being armed with my celebrated buffalo killer, Lucretia Borgia, a newly improved breech-loading needle gun, which I had obtained from the government. While I was riding toward the buffaloes, I observed five horsemen coming out from the fort, who had evidently seen the buffaloes from the post, and were going out for a chase. They proved to be some newly arrived officers in that part of the country, and when they came up closer, I could see by the shoulder straps that the senior officer was a captain, while the others were lieutenants. "'Hello, May friend,' sang out the captain. "'I see you are after the same game we are.' "'Yes, sir. I saw those buffaloes coming over the hill, and as we were about out of fresh meat, I thought I would go and get some,' said I. They scanned my cheap-looking outfit pretty closely, and as my horse was not very prepossessing in appearance, having on only a blind bridle, and otherwise looking like a workhorse, they evidently considered me a green hand at hunting. "'Do you expect to catch those buffaloes on that gothic steed?' laughingly asked the captain. "'I hope so, by pushing on the reins hard enough,' was my reply. "'You'll never catch them in the world, my fine fellow,' said the captain. "'It requires a fast horse to overtake the animals on these prairies.' "'Does it?' asked I, as if I didn't know it. "'Yes, but come along with us, as we are going to kill them more for pleasure than anything else. All we want are the tongues and a piece of tenderloin. You may have all that is left,' said the generous man." "'I am much obliged to you, Captain, and will follow you,' I replied. There were eleven buffaloes in the herd, and they were not more than a mile from us. The officers dashed ahead, as if they had a sure thing on killing them all before I could come up with them. But I had noticed that the herd was making towards the creek for water, and as I knew buffalo nature, I was perfectly aware that it would be difficult to turn them from their direct course. Thereupon I started towards the creek to head them off, while the officers came up in the rear and gave chase.' The buffaloes came rushing past me not a hundred yards distant, with the officers about three hundred yards in the rear. Now, thought I, is the time to get my work in, as they say, and I pulled the blind bridle from my horse, who knew as well as I did that we were out for buffaloes, as he was a trained hunter. The moment the bridle was off, he started at the top of his speed, running in ahead of the officers, and with a few jumps he brought me alongside of the rear buffalo. Raising old Lucretia Borgia to my shoulder, I fired and killed the animal at the first shot. My horse then carried me alongside the next one, not ten feet away, and I dropped him at the next fire. As soon as one buffalo would fall, Brigham would take me so close to the next that I could almost touch it with my gun. In this manner I killed the eleven buffaloes with twelve shots, and as the last animal dropped, my horse stopped. I jumped to the ground, knowing that he would not leave me. It must be remembered that I had been riding him without bridle, reins, or saddle, and turning round as the party of astonished officers rode up, I said to them, Now, gentlemen, allow me to present to you all the tongues and tenderloins you wish from these buffaloes. Captain Graham, for such I soon learned was his name, replied, Well, I never saw the like before. Who under the sun are you, anyhow? My name is Cody, said I. One of the lieutenants, Thompson by name, who had met me at Fort Harker, then recognized me and said, Why, that is Bill Cody, our old scout. He then introduced me to the other officers, who were Captain Graham, of the 10th Cavalry, and Lieutenants Reed, Emmick, and Ezekiel. Captain Graham, who was considerable of a horseman, 
greatly admired Brigham, and said, "'That horse of yours has running points.' "'Yes, sir. He has not only got the points, he is a runner and knows how to use the points,' said I. "'So I noticed,' said the captain. They all finally dismounted, and we continued chatting for some little time upon the different subjects of horses, buffaloes, Indians, and hunting. They felt a little sore at not getting a single shot at the buffaloes, but the way I had killed them had, they said, amply repaid them for their disappointment. They had read of such feats in books, but this was the first time they had ever seen anything of the kind with their own eyes. It was the first time, also, that they had ever witnessed or heard of a white man running buffaloes on horseback without a saddle or a bridle. I told them that Brigham knew nearly as much about the business as I did, and if I had had twenty bridles, they would have been of no use to me, as he understood everything, and all that he expected of me was to do the shooting. It is a fact that Brigham would stop if a buffalo did not fall at the first fire, so as to give me a second chance. But if I did not kill the buffalo then, he would go on as if to say, You are no good, and I will not fool away time by giving you more than two shots. Brigham was the best horse I ever owned or saw for buffalo chasing. Our conversation was interrupted in a little while by the arrival of the wagon which I had ordered out. I loaded the hindquarters of the youngest buffaloes on it, and then cut out the tongues and tenderloins, and presented them to the officers, after which I rode towards the fort with them, while the wagon returned to camp. Captain Graham told me that he expected to be stationed at Fort Hayes during the summer, and would probably be sent out on a scouting expedition, and in case he was, he would like to have me accompany him as scout and guide. I replied that notwithstanding I was very busy with my railroad contract, I would go with him if he was ordered out. I then left the officers and returned to our camp. That very night the Indians unexpectedly made a raid on the horses, and ran off five or six of our very best work teams, leaving us in a very crippled condition. At daylight I jumped on Old Brigham and rode to Fort Hayes, when I reported the affair to the commanding officer. Captain Graham and Lieutenant Emick were at once ordered out with their company of one hundred colored troops to pursue the Indians and recover our stock if possible. In an hour we were under way. The darkies had never been in an Indian fight, and were anxious to catch the band we were after and sweep the red devils from off the face of the earth. Captain Graham was a brave, dashing officer, eager to make a record for himself, and it was with difficulty that I could trail fast enough to keep out of the way of the impatient soldiers. Every few moments Captain Graham would ride up to see if the trail was freshening, and how soon we should be likely to overtake the thieves. At last we reached the Saline River where we found the Indians had only stopped to feed and water the animals, and had then pushed on towards the Solomon. After crossing the Saline, they made no effort to conceal their trail, thinking they would not be pursued beyond that point. Consequently, we were able to make excellent time. We reached the Solomon before sunset, and came to a halt. We surmised that if the Indians were camped on this river, that they had no suspicion of our being in the neighborhood. I advised Captain Graham to remain with the company where it was, while I went ahead on a scout to find the Indians, if they were in the vicinity. After riding some distance down the ravine that led to the river, I left my horse at the foot of a hill. Then, creeping to the top, I looked cautiously over the summit upon the Solomon below. I at once discovered in plain view, not a mile away, a herd of horses grazing, our lost ones among them. Very shortly I made out the Indian camp, noted its lay, and how we could best approach it. Reporting to Captain Graham, whose eyes fairly danced with delight at the prospect of surprising and whipping the Redskins, we concluded to wait until the moon rose, then get into the timber so as to approach the Indians as closely as possible without being discovered, and finally to make a sudden dash into their camp and clean them out. 
we had everything cut and dried as we thought but alas just as we were nearing the point where we were to take the open ground and make our charge one of the colored gentlemen became so excited that he fired off his gun we immediately commenced the charge but the firing of the gun and the noise of our rush through the crackling timber alarmed the indians who at once sprang to their horses and were away from us before we reached their late camp captain graham called out follow me boys which we did for a while but in the darkness the indians made good their escape the bugle then gave the recall but some of the darkies did not get back until morning having in their fright allowed their horses to run away with them whithersoever it suited the animal's pleasure to go we followed the trail the next day for a while but as it became evident that it would be a long chase to overtake the enemy and as we had rations only for the day we commenced the return captain graham was bitterly disappointed in not being able to get the fight when it seemed so near at one time he roundly cursed the quote, nigger end quote, who fired the gun and as a punishment for his carelessness he was compelled to walk all the way back to fort hayes End of chapter 13